Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Silver State of Birding, a birding podcast mostly about Nevada birds and bird science. I am your host, Ned Bowman, and I am recording with your host, Alex Harper. Those sounds you heard that started up the episode were the closest of dozens, if not hundreds, of Cassin's auklets that have arrived on the island and were singing in full force on a few evenings. At the time of this recording, I was still volunteering on southeast Farallon Island at the Farallon Island National Wildlife Refuge, and we talk about this in our last episode, number five, so you can check that out for more context. But this is a spectacular wildlife refuge 30 miles off the coast of San Francisco, closed to the general public, only open to researchers, and run by Point Blue Conservation Science and the United States Fish and Wildlife Service. In this episode, Alex and I touch base on what's going on on Southeast Farallon and do a bit of a deep dive into bird learning. We talk about what resources and frameworks have helped us learn birds, as well as how the birding community shapes one's ability to learn birds. We also discuss some recent rare bird sightings in Nevada, recent at the time, about a month ago, but never mind that, as well as highlights from an Audubon Society conference that Alex attended and how that relates to how we bird. We finish up the episode with some of our thoughts on name changes. Hope you enjoy the episode, and we encourage you to share some feedback through the Q&A poll attached to the episode. Ned, what's going on, man? Uh, you're still in one of the coolest places on planet Earth. I'm in my apartment in downtown area Las Vegas, near UNLV. I wish I was where you are. Uh, tell me about what's going on there. Just like a really quick bullet point. What's exciting? Yeah. That is correct. I'm still out here on Southeast Farallon Island. Farallon Island's National Wildlife Refuge. We've been seeing seabirds lately. The murs and the auklets are returning. We've had a few dark nights and they were just like Cassin's auklets bombing all over the place. We estimated maybe a thousand of them. And those things are little, it's like a flying potato. They'll literally just fly right into you. They have no agility in the air. They will take you out if you're not careful. So the night walks have been interesting. And then during the days, we've had some wicked northwest winds lately, and we've had maybe 300,000 common murs show up. They're landing on the cliffs. They're floating in rafts off the island. They're wailing and groaning their crazy trumpet calls. The... So they're kind of like ducks in that they'll start courting early winter. Yeah, I I don't I think it's sort of like a series of conditions like timing, winds. I I don't know what all goes into it, but some days we'll have like none and then some days there'll be like 300,000. And so I think they're still sort of gearing up and you see them swirling around. I've heard them referred to as mernados and it really <laughs> it's a pretty apt description of what's going on out there. But yeah, they, they start in the winter and it's it's quite a process though. I mean, they won't really be underway for another month or more, I think. But they're they're thinking about it. The conditions are suggesting to them that it is time. And it's it's pretty fun to watch. <laughs> Super cool. Yeah. Seabirds and alcids especially, they're just they just operate so differently from many of the birds in the terrestrial ecosystem. You know, they're just more factors driving their breeding then I, at least I take into account, I don't quite understand them. So uh, I hope you learn more so that you can tell me so I can better understand. Me too. Um, cool. Really Just cool. as a reminder, everybody, uh, Ned is on some islands off of San Francisco, California, the Fairlawns and uh, um, a famed place to see 
great white sharks attacking elephant seals and sea lions, uh, just amazing birds there. You get uh, wayward birds from way in the eastern part of North America. Sometimes you get species coming in across the Bering Sea and Northern Pacific from Asia. They can show up there too. Anything can, ha can happen. So it has that reputation. I'm always really excited to talk to Ned and hear about what he's seen. Totally. Yeah. And if anyone else, our listeners are curious, you can check back to the last episode. We talk a little bit more about it, but we got white sharks and whales and birds from Siberia. Well, not yet, but we know we're on, we know they're on the way with these Northwestern winds. I mean, they gotta be, but anyway, you can refer back to our previous episode to hear more about uh, the Farallon Islands. What's on your mind these days, other than the obvious, you know, amazing biodiversity around you, uh, on the islands, like what's occupying your thoughts on birding these days? Well, it's learning. So it's it's interesting you mentioned that because like you were saying, I, I know such little about this ecosystem out here. I feel like I am learning so much about how to observe the sea, how to learn the birds out here. Like what I've got this framework for learning birds that I can easily employ. And so I'm in this new novel situation where you don't have seas to observe in Nevada. You don't have shearwaters flying by to identify at high speed, quick glimpses of. But so, so I'm putting together this framework of learning the birds. And I've been thinking about that a lot. And I had a friend ask me like, about, get, about how to learn the birds. Like they asked for a book recommendation and it's like, you know, I, I don't, how does it work? I don't, I don't know if it works that way. I don't know if there is one good book I can recommend. I think everyone learns differently. And so I was just sort of thinking about how I'm learning birds. It's a lifelong process, right? Everywhere you go is different. I'm very confident and comfortable with the birds of Nevada. And here I am out here in a new situation. And I'm like, okay, so how do I do this? And so I've been, I guess I've been thinking a lot about that lately. And uh, I don't know, I think it comes down to sort of motivation and having that drive to connect the dots is sort of what I've what I've put together and what I've realized. I think that last part that you said is definitely a part of it. I think motivation is important. You know, if you're not motivated to go do it, then you're not going to do it. You're going to look for something else uh, that you are motivated to, to do. Right. So part of motivation, I think you need to have some wins and birding can be incredibly hard. So if you don't get enough wins right away, you can get dissuaded and look at it as something that's just too difficult to do. It's it's almost like, it's almost as if you're doing math for fun. You're going to go look for something a little bit less challenging. But if you are having some wins right off the bat, then I think that you can be more motivated to do it because you see yourself learning, you see, you see yourself succeeding, and therefore you can see yourself doing it again and again. I think that's important. So, um, I've been thinking about this too, Ned, because I've been I've been thinking about how different Audubon chapters are 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 struggling in some ways to engage many volunteers and have them step up into trip leader roles. And in hearing from these people from different chapters, you know, dealing with different people than I do, what I'm learning is that they don't they themselves are having trouble growing people within their organization that are um, feeling comfortable leading trips where you're teaching people how to bird. And so I was thinking, well, how do you bird? You know, what are the ways in which you 
um, you can become a better birder or, or you by better birder, I mean, you, you're becoming more familiar or confident, um, identifying birds, if that's your goal. And so I've been thinking about different strategies and resources for that. So let's talk about some of those things today. Yeah, I think that's a great idea. I think it's a timely thing to talk about in this era of widespread uh, information at our fingertips. I mean, the internet, a field guides, eBird, there's so many resources that you can just reach out to, but it's not enough to just go pick up a field guide. That's that's not the answer, right? Like, I think it's very easy for some of us experienced birders to look at these like egregious miss IDs based on Merlin that trip the ABA <laughs> rare bird alert on eBird from, from something. And you're like, pick up a field guide. And it's, it's not that simple. There's like, like, sure, you could pick up a field guide and that would suggest where certain things should be. But just having these resources alone isn't enough. There's more to connecting these dots. And I think there's like a whole framework that for me was just sort of, it just happened. Like I was super motivated and I had a field guide and I had a lot of time to go observe birds. And that's what I did. <laughs> and, that's, and, and I had a lot of good, a lot of great teachers along the way showing me how. And I, I feel very lucky that that's sort of gotten me to to where I'm at, but I don't think it's not the same for everyone. And I think we're in a position where we can sort of foster that. Mm -hmm. and, I, and I think there's a lot of benefits to doing so for everyone. Okay. So let's talk about some resources. Let's talk about some common pitfalls that uh, some, you know, that many beginning birders run into. Let's talk about how more experienced birders, so people who have been doing it for years or sometimes even decades, can embrace uh, beginning birders instead of potentially dissuading some of them by making it look no fun or less fun than it is, because uh, it's really fun. And uh, maintaining the stoke, you know, how do we do that? How do we maintain that that stoke so that you're motivated to keep doing it? So um, we, we talked uh, a little bit before we went live here that we wanted to talk about like, what does a playbook look like of the cost efficient? Cause it, unfortunately it's not free to, to really start birding. I, I don't think um, like what is a cost efficient playbook or strategy for getting more confident with the birds in ways that prepare you to learn on your own. And then some other things that can really benefit you like finding teachers along the way. Yeah, I think that's a great starting point. I think first off, the things that you'd want to, I feel like you should not have to invest, investing in binoculars and a field guide. Those, those are, from my point of view, those are the investments. Mm -hmm. I think those, those are, that's the starting point. And then you, you meet people in the birding community that, that help you, help you connect those dots. You know, you meet people when you're out birding and you can quickly pick up on someone you can learn from and, and some people that you can't learn from. There's a lot of, there's a lot of nuance and there's a lot of different, uh, I don't know, different attitudes towards birding. There's, there's, there's a whole spectrum of birders. There's, there's experienced birders that have seen a lot of birds and are just interested in seeing new ones. Mm -hmm. There's experienced birders that are interested in learning why the birds are doing what they're doing. And, uh, and there's, yeah, you run, you run into all, all kinds of these different people when you're out there. Yeah. Yeah. I, there are so many different strategies, you know, you have people that um, are really big onto slow or mindful birding where identifying birds is not even a part of it. You know, it's, that's, that's the experience. And then you have at the other end of a birding spectrum, 
people who are really solely interested in in identifying birds that they've never seen in a certain state or country before. Um, and maybe they've been doing it for many decades and that's just kind of how they prioritize. Right. And there's a whole spectrum in between. Um, I think that the reason you're spot on about the resources, I would actually just make a tweak me personally is that the field guide is important. A field guide is probably going to run 25, 30 bucks. I personally recommend Sibley or national geographic as field guides in North America. Um, but I actually, downloaded the Audubon app. Um, and I also use Merlin and eBird. And I, I think that between those three, you can definitely get started, but nothing replaces a couple field guides. Um, I think that's worth working towards, you know, having a Sibley guide, a National Geographic guide. Um, Ken Kaufman has uh, guides with photographs that have a lot of information. Um, I'm looking for things with current range maps and I want them to be very comprehensive. Um, that makes it more confusing, but at least I know that I'm not missing anything or I'm not potentially missing anything because it's covered in the guide. So between those resources, I think I have enough to get started and I have reference material. The nice thing is now that everything is digitized, that um, auto, you know, organizations like Audubon and Cornell want you to have the free information. So the free information is there. So I think that's awesome. Binoculars, I think a good pair of binoculars are no no way around it. I think that you need to have binoculars um, at some point in time. They really enhance your observational experiences, and that's going to translate to getting to know your birds better and better over time and enjoying them more, but not necessary to get started. Um, I know some people that can get by without binoculars. I often go birding without binoculars and just kind of like look and listen, see what I can notice without them. And then there are the five strategies that we were talking about. Um, do you want to dive into those or was there something that I missed, you think? Um, no, I think we should jump into those strategies, but I wanted to make a note that along with the field guide books that we're talking about, I, I think those apps are great. I think there's also no substitute for having a book in the hand. I love being able to page through it and that helps me realize how everything is connected, I guess, rather than having to search or scroll through an app. I think there's something about the experience of interacting with that resource that, I, I don't know, that might just be, be me. But all that was sort of a tangent to what I actually wanted to say was that some of these fiction, not even fiction books, they're nonfiction, but they're not, uh, not like field guide style books, but something like Kingbird Highway by Ken Kaufman or The Big Year. Books like that, that are about birders birding mm. and how their crazy experiences they have. I think that can actually be super helpful and motivational and circle back to that maintaining the stoke that we were talking about, because that is underlying all of this, you know, having all these resources at your fingertips. That's great. Everyone can read through that. But if you don't have that underlying stoke to motivate you to connect those dots with what you're seeing in the natural world. That's, that's what's going to pull it all together, I think. Mm. So it's kind of like you're saying that as part of your resource bin, you know, there's the stuff that helps you with field observation and learning like a field guide or binocular, but maybe some other extracurriculars that, uh, that help you learn without it feeling like you're learning. Um, but you, you're picking up on all this stuff in the narrative of something like Kingbird Highway and learning about why South Texas is special and why Southeast Arizona is special and why Florida is special, Alaska is special from Ken Kaufman. And exactly. you're going to learn a lot. Yeah. And it motivates you to, to learn. 
that's a good so point. Much more to, there's so much more to birding than just like appreciating the beauty of a single bird. It's like mm. the experience of getting to that bird. Like when you're flipping through the field guide and you see a swallow-tailed kite and you're like, where do I have to go to see that? What What's going to get what's going to get that bird in my binoculars? Mm. <laughs> mm-hmm. I like that. Okay, cool. Yeah. So that's, I'd say that's like motivational resourcing. <laughs> um, let's dive into those strategies. Cause I think that they're very, they capture everything that you'd want. You know, when you're starting birding, I think what's kind of tough about it is that most people aren't teaching you an actual strategy or an approach or perspective or a framework. They're just kind of saying like, here's a field guide, here's some binoculars, here's some resources, go. And I think that we can actually be a little bit more intentional about this. And so what I have found is that, um, you know, looking at five strategies as five fundamental things that you can always return to and get out of just about every single observation with any bird anywhere in the world at any time, I think it helps you layer on those skills that, eventually over time lead you to the point where you're identifying birds without even knowing how you identified them. And I think that's, that's the level of like mastery where it's very intuitive, but it doesn't start off that way, right? Like we have to put a lot of thought into this. It is a, you know, sometimes a very logical process where there's critical thinking involved. Right. And so what are the pieces of critical thinking that need to be involved? And I've whittled them down to the following. Uh, the first one will be our size and our shape of the bird. And sometimes size can be difficult to gauge. Um, so you generally, like if you have some reference, that's going to be helpful, but general size and shape are going to be good. The sound of the bird, you know, many sounds are diagnostic. So this is going to include the calls, the songs, maybe the sounds that the bird will make uh, from drumming or from whistling in the wings, like a, from a snipe or um, a morning dove as it's flying by. Then we have our context. Context is very important. It's human brains work really well with context. We're very context driven. And so there's a lot of really subconscious learning that's happening when we're con- when we're understanding context. So our context is going to be our, our time of year, um, our location, our general region, and the habitat. So I'm thinking here in Las Vegas that if I'm going to get a bird at the bird preserve, Henderson Bird Viewing Preserve, I'm thinking, okay, what is going to show up in this context? My context being late November in Southern Nevada. So the Mojave Desert um, in a in a wetland with desert nearby. Um, that's exactly where I'm going to start to to think um, that the, the, sighting, the sighting of the bird um, fits into that context. So I'm going to start there see where it takes me. I'm looking at pattern and plumage. So the field marks of the birds, like what patterns am I seeing? Am I seeing black and white alternating patterns on a hawk that would be called a terminal band? Am I seeing streaks on a sparrow versus non-streaks? Well, maybe I'm looking at a song sparrow and not a white crown if I see streaks there, but I believe that I'm looking at a sparrow. Um, it's those types of situations. And then the last one is my behavior. I'm looking at the bird's behavior. How is it moving through this this landscape? Um, If it's walking and bobbing its head along the muddy banks of a pond and it's contextually makes sense, it's late November, I might think American Pippet and and looking at that 
behavior as a possibility. So it's really taking all these different strategies, uh, these different puzzle pieces and layering them together. And the more and more you do that, then the more comfortable you're going to get identifying birds because it captures ev everything. If you're paying attention to all those things, you're going to learn your birds really well. And I think that if you're doing that in your neighborhood first, you're learning your 15 to 20 species in your neighborhood. And therefore you're, you're only ever really seeing about nine, 99% of the birds that you're seeing are going to be ones that are those 15 to 20%. So you kind of know what you're in for and you have a lot of guardrails and you're learning it first. And I think you can learn really quickly how to get proficient at birding and the process in ways that set you up for success uh, for the rest of your life. It can all be done in your neighborhood. So that's what I would definitely want beginning birders to take away. Cool. I think that's such a useful way to break all that down. I think for me, some of that is stuff I just at this point take for granted and I have a hard time breaking down like, okay, these are the things that I looked at. This is how I identified that bird. It's like, but it's such a, it can be so difficult to break that down and explain it to people. And I think that's where we get into the nuance of like the birding community and how we can all help each other. And I think um, there's so much knowledge um, that's been built up by experienced birders from observing birds that like uh, I, I'm proud of the knowledge that I've learned and I think a lot of other birders are proud of the knowledge that they've learned too and it's like something that uh, it's a skill that we've all worked hard to to get and I think it's a really cool thing to try to share that with people that are just getting into the hobby and to empower them to be motivated to to do the same so I think I guess that gets into the the last part of our structure framework here of, of finding a good teacher, a good mentor to help help put all that together and show you, I guess, what to emphasize within within that uh, those strategies you mentioned of looking at a bird. It's it's different for every species, right? It's different for every bird. Like some some species, you want to look at the undertail covert. Some species, they're the same, and that's not helpful to differentiate them. So knowing when to look at what things, and that's something that can be very difficult to put together just by yourself by looking mm -hmm. at birds. Like I think it certainly can be done, but I think having an experienced birder with you that's willing to share all that knowledge and help you put that together. And so then you know, like, okay, I'm looking at a warbler with a really fine bill and it's got a little bit of a supercilium or an eyebrow. What color are its undertail coverts? That's going to be a useful field mark to separate. Maybe this is an orange crown or maybe this is a Tennessee warbler. And I think there's so many situations like that where, uh, and the field guides will mention these, like, hey, these are similar species, look for these marks. But having a teacher and someone that has really mastered this knowledge, being able to communicate that to you, uh, goes a long way. And I think that's helped me a lot on my path of birding. And yeah. So, similar so here's what I summarize it with. Yeah. This is taking what you're saying and what I said, here's what I summarize with that. The five strategies that I laid out are enough to help you get started and feel motivation on your own because you are successful using the strategy, but a teacher can help you learn very quickly by sharing the knowledge that they learned from employing those same five strategies repeated over and over for many years, as well as the information that they're getting from other people that employed those same five strategies over and over, over time. So you're, you're able to hear nuances and behavior, sound, 
um, movement and ranges, all these things that we're talking about in those five strategies can be shared by teachers and find teachers that um, that do that for you and you're set up for even more success. And I think, you know, before we were talking, we we're talking about the the pitfalls that many beginning birders run into, but also the the ways in which uh, more experienced birders just can sometimes dissuade uh, beginners from getting more involved. And I think that um, there's a sometimes a small minority of birders who are really only interested in the most unusual bird sightings. And you only learn what's unusual after many years of birding, right? And so you have all these, <laughs> you have people that don't really know what's unusual or what's common yet, you know, on these public spaces, on Facebook, uh, on listservs, um, on WhatsApp threads, you know, there are all these ways in which people are sharing information and the ex, you know, the experienced people that have been doing it for decades are saying like, Hey, you know, um, take this elsewhere. I only want to know about the bird that shows up in this area one to five times a year. Uh, anything that's more frequent than that, take that conversation elsewhere. So there's that mentality that exists sometimes and all these beginners, see that and they're like, I don't want to, I don't, now I don't feel like I can ask questions because I don't know what's acceptable and what's not. So I'm, it's better that I don't say anything at all. And that's really unfortunate because there are so many people that are interested in birds and we need more people interested in birds and active more than ever because of where bird populations are at and this trend that's going on. And there's so many birders in the United States. There's a report by um, U.S. Fish and Wildlife. It's called Birding in the United States, a Demographic and Economic Analysis. It was published in 2016. So before COVID, I think more people got interested during COVID. So I think the numbers have only gone up since. But in 2016, they found that there are an estimated 45 million birders in the country of the United States. So we have about 365, 370 million people here, 45 million self-report as a birder, self-identify as a birder. And about 39 of those are uh, around the home birders, so like backyard birders. But the remaining 6 million are people that are seem to be actively engaged. They're going out, they might have binoculars or cameras, and they're going out to parks and national wildlife refuges and national parks to go birding. Where are they? Our chapter here in Red Rock, we're only 350 paying members. Uh, but in theory, we might have tens or hundreds of thousands of of people that are already interested in birds. So something's off here, um, and we need to we need to think about our strategies, our messaging, our advertising, uh, how we're getting in touch with people, what our messaging is, because uh, something's off. Is yeah. what I'm. Wondering. It's all about the community. It's just there's so many different aspects of birding that grab people on different levels, and I think circling back to what you were saying before about these very experienced birders that are only interested in the most unique and novel sightings. And then you've got the birders that are interested in the birds at their feeder in the backyard. And there's just so many aspects of birding that can enthuse one and motivate one and grab one in. So, so figuring out what, what motivates you, there's no one answer. It's different for everyone. And I think as a collective birding community, there's just, there's just so much of us out there that we can all help each other and help each other figure out what, motivates us and where we want to focus our attention are we conservation minded are we rarity bird <laughs> rarity bird are we are we rarity minded you know like what is uh -huh. what is what is going to drive us out to look at birds 
and I, I think that's sort of the like the the nuance of the situation, I guess. But at the end of the day, the result is all the same. Like all of us getting out there looking at birds. It's like if you're just interested in seeing rare birds, well, conservation is sort of a necessity of that. And if you're just inter interested in conservation, rare birds come with that. So there's this sort of feedback loop of everyone winning and everything ben benefiting everyone. If if the experienced birders are helping the newer birders learn, newer birders are finding extraordinary things that they don't realize are extraordinary. But if they feel comfortable asking, then they can they can do so in a supportive environment. And then it's it's this whole beneficial feedback uh, loop. You know you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Yeah. No, it sounds like what you're saying is when, when like, like birds win, when beginners win and experienced birders win. And so there has to be a way in which there's more support for beginning birders. It's, it's generally good that there are many more beginning birders that are coming out and it's up to experienced birders to see how they fit into that process. Um, because when we do that, then the birds win. We we have more people that are like championing for birds and that's a great thing. So I would even assert that we can't do our best conservation work unless we cultivate that type of culture. So yeah. I'd say it's like imperative um, yeah. to do that. We got to maintain the stoke. Got to maintain the stoke. Exactly. Like they're just like, they're, it's just too fun to feel like, there's not enough to go around, right? Like there's so many birds in so many places, uh, you know, like I can enjoy them from my backyard. I can enjoy them in a park with like three dozen other people, you know, it's just, it's just that type of thing. Yeah. I mean, I think that's why we both do what we do because we just like birding is just such a cool thing. I love observing birds and I love sharing that with people. And I think you are of the same mindset since you're, it's so fun. You do. It's so fun. Yeah. It's like, the natural world is so interesting and seeing people also draw that same conclusion uh, in front of you is really cool. Um, we talked about a couple things that we can keep in mind as, a, as more experienced birders, experienced birders being anyone who has been birding for anywhere between a couple of years, like two or three years, all the way to um, several decades with the caveat that many people learn at different speeds, you know, um, people can learn very quickly when they, when they find a good strategy and double down and like commit, they have that high stoke and motivation. Um, so it's, there's like years don't necessarily translate to certain amount of knowledge or breadth of knowledge by any means, but let's say that that is what, you know, the experienced birders fit in there. Beginners have been doing it for a couple months or a couple of years. Um, what what things can we keep in mind as experienced birders to um, keep things kind of simpler? Like what are the most confusing things that trips up uh, beginning birders that experienced birders might use like jargon or specific things? Yeah, totally. I think the way we, yeah, that's, that's a good point. The way we talk about birds, I mean, that in and of itself can be very divisive. If you have these this uh, this group of elites that are just referring to birds by their alpha codes and using all this jargon that newer birders don't understand about feather anatomy and things like that. And I think there's a time and place for all of these things, but it's worth worth keeping in mind how we talk about birds. And rather than referring to a lesser goldfinch as a Lego, you can call them a lesser goldfinch, uh, things like that. Um, it's just sort of second nature when you when you've 
referred to a lot of these birds and looked at a lot of them. It just rolls off the tongue. There goes a coops. A, a what? That was a Cooper's hawk. Um, <laughs> Yeah, right. Things like that. We get nicknames for all these birds that we see so often that uh, we we it's easy to forget that not everyone has that depth of knowledge. So you you did it when you're describing orange crown versus Tennessee warbler. You're talking about undertail coverts and superciliums. Yeah, totally. What doesn't everyone know what an undertail covert is? <laughs> it took me years. <laughs> I'll share a personal story. I remember following along the Tropical Audubon Society bird board when I was first starting out to like really bird. And some of South Florida's, in my mind, most expertly birders would post on there and they talk about Tennessee warbler and orange crown warbler because we get them there in South Florida. And um, orange crown is rare down there, but Tennessee passes through in decent numbers uh, twice a year, um, especially in the fall. And so somebody's talking about how she eliminated orange crown as a possibility because she described the undertail covert color of the bird that she identified as a Tennessee, which of course have, you know, light undertail coverts. And I had no idea what she was talking about. And I went into my field guide and eventually just looked at like the topography of a bird, you know, at the very beginning of most bird guides, they have bird parts and saw what the undertail coverts were. But I had no idea what they were at first. Um, and she, that person, I remember who she is, we're still sort of in touch. Um, she lives on the East coast and, and she's a wonderful teacher. She's very thoughtful, uh, but even in this post, she, she didn't elaborate on that. And we need to remember, yeah, like the alpha codes, the, the, the topography of birds, bird parts, um, sometimes aren't intuitive. Like there's so many different types of feathers and, People may not know what primaries are or secondaries are. Uh, sometimes it takes years to to figure that out. So um, just remembering to do that, but then also you have to be sensitive that a lot of people might not like that you're telling them something that they already knew. You know, you might even hear hear that from people. So there's no real right way to do it, I think. But if you're going into it with the intention to teach, um, then you can't necessarily go wrong too often. Yeah, I think the point is that it's it's easy enough to be mindful of how we talk about things to include everyone. That it's that it's worth doing, that there's benefits mm -hmm. to doing it. Yeah. And yeah, what's good for birds, um uh, good for all birders of all skill types. That's uh, the bottom line, totally. Right. Cool. Yeah, well, I I like those well. thoughts, Ned. Yeah, sorry, did you hear my radio going off there? I my uh we, no. we take the daily uh, temperature of the of the sea here. It's called SST for shorthand, surface sea surface temperature. We've been doing it since we, the, the people on the island have been doing it since the early 1900s daily. So it's the longest data set on the island. So it's pretty cool. But my coworker, the, the spot where you sample that from is sort of this cliffy ledge where he straps into a harness and walks around this little walkway on a boulder. And so, uh, so he lets us know when he's going around the corner to do that. And then we wait for him to confirm when he's come back. So we know he didn't fall into the ocean. Yeah. Small, small Island safety and communication. I got it. All right. <laughs> so I have to ask though, what, what's the, what has the trend been in sea surface temperatures there since the early 1900s? You know, I haven't, I haven't checked as far back as the early 1900s. It's so interesting though. It fluctuates more than you'd think on a daily mm -hmm. basis. Um, but right now we're looking at temperatures that are, it's all anywhere from like 13 to 14 degrees Celsius is about what we're getting. 
sometimes in the sometimes high 14s but i don't think i've ever seen it hit 15 while i've been here um but i think uh well that's a good question i'm gonna have to go i'm gonna have to go back and look because i uh i could speculate a guess but rather than just throw out misinformation i'll just uh <laughs> that's wise you'll have to stay tuned for that <laughs> that's good science communication um let's move on to something else let's talk about like let's switch gears here let's talk about rare birds yeah fall is super fun for that early winter is really fun for that so what you got in uh in northern nevada should i I tell you about what's on the parallels no i've been keeping keeping tabs on what's going on in uh in nevada while i've been out here and it's some fun winter birds showing up i think we talked about the acorn woodpecker last episode that thing is still around at lake park in reno We've had some winter ducks showing up, some scoters, mostly surf, but there have been reports of white-winged as well. There was two redneck grebes out on Pyramid Lake a couple weeks ago. I'm losing track of time here, but um, photos were gorgeous. One of these birds was still or already, I I guess I'm not entirely sure how to word that, but in breeding plumage, just a beautiful beautiful bird. Yeah, really nice photos of that thing on eBird. Um, so I'm not sure. I, I would guess, multi, I, I don't know. I don't know what it's doing. If it's still in breeding plumage or if it's molting in early, I, I, I don't know what that species does with their molt timing. But either way, it strikes me as an odd time for it to be in breeding plumage. <laughs> but, Interesting. Um, yeah, I know. I thought so too. But um, yeah, we've got some other standard winter stuff. Our purple finches that are now a regular winter thing in Reno. Um, I've, you know, I've only been in Reno since 2017 and that's, I guess, right around when the purple finches were becoming a regular thing. So I've, I've always known them to be a winter bird in Reno, but that has not always been the case. And if you go back just a couple years before 2017, they were pretty much unheard of. So, and now they're, there's males, there's females, there's multiple birds, they're at feeders, they're in parks um that's uh, uh yeah i've been keeping tabs on southern nevada too there's some cool stuff going going mm. on there yeah let me tell you about them but i, I got yeah. two thoughts on that really really quick yeah um so interesting that you mentioned that the redneck grebes or at least one of them is molting into breeding plumage we have breeding activity down here beginning with our western and our clark's grebes and parts of lake mead and i find it interesting that they breed in the winter time or at least they'll court and they'll start having young late winter. Oh. So that's totally a thing, uh, maybe with large grebes. I don't know what horned, pied-billed, and eared grebes are doing um, and, and how they relate to the red-necked Western and Clarks. So that's oh, interesting. interesting. Um, and then purple finches. We had a maybe four falls ago, a little eruption of purple finches. I'm not sure where they came from, but yeah, we, we have so many finches that come in and out of the Las Vegas Valley, taking advantage of the various non-native plants that produce cones here. Um, and I remember a couple of years ago, like purple finches were around in multiple numbers, but not really in the last few. Yeah. But what we have here right now, probably the most exciting is a rufous-backed robin. It's unusual anywhere in Nevada. When they do show up, it shows up seemingly in connection with the arrival of birds in Arizona and, um, you know, more closer to the Sonoran desert, but, uh, these birds probably are part of that same movement. 
and we've had a couple years in a row of rufous-backed robins in the area. This one's at Corn Creek. Um, it's eating some of the fruit around the orchard there. There's also a varied thrush, a really attractive male, a varied thrush. I saw it the other day and it had this like gunmetal, steely gray mantle and beautiful black and orange markings on the face. It was just like a crisp bird and just beautiful light they eating are. crushed walnuts of all things. They are such Corn a stunning Creek. bird. They're like yeah, amazing. Finch. You know, if the they're American, amazing, the American red start can be the Halloween warbler. I think the varied thrush is the Halloween thrush. That's totally. Favorite. Yeah. The, the combination <laughs> of orange and black in nature and white in there is like, it's pretty amazing. And that varied thrush is like, I, I remember not, I was with a couple people and I just couldn't stop shutting up about how beautiful it was and thinking it was just over the top and I need to yeah. keep my mouth shut, let people just <laughs> see this in silence. Wow. Um, there's an Eastern Phoebe oh, hanging out. What you got? There's an Eastern Phoebe hanging out at Corn Creek. Um, there, I think somebody had a Pacific Wren somewhere. I, I had a Golden Crown Sparrow a couple weeks ago, um, but they're kind of expected. Uh, there's a yellow-footed gull hanging out at Lake Mead. This is probably the same one that's been hanging out the last few years since at least March 2022 in Lake Mead area and probably the bird that was down in Havasu. Um for you know at least two years ago it's probably the same bird just kind of moving up and down that part of the colorado river and now it's an adult plumage so it, it's pretty recognizable um hanging out with herring and iceland ring build and california gulls on the west side of lake mead and um we did have a groove build a cuckoo from central america and mexico it was hanging out at the bird preserve a lot of people saw this bird it was very popular. I think dozens of people saw it. Um, they came from many different areas across our state and neighboring states. But eventually this bird was eaten. Yeah. So this um this bird met its end. Somebody found they the carcass of the Ani one morning at the bird preserve. Um, and one hasn't been seen since. So presumably the same Ani, which makes sense. <laughs> it wasn't a second bird. <laughs> <laughs> it makes sense. There's only one there. Um, there are currently no other Ani's are known about that I know of in, in the state of Nevada. Uh, they're, nice. they're super rare here. Um, yeah, it was probably a Cooper's Hawk. And, you know, this bird was hanging out in the open a lot, uh, sunning itself. And when they sun, sun themselves, they're sitting up on an exposed perch and kind of putting their back towards the sun and warming up, kind of like other cuckoos do, like greater roadrunners do this a lot. This is pretty similar. Um, it was perched up on the Tamarisk Island a lot um, in one of the ponds. And I guess one day the Cooper's Hawk probably saw it. Uh, the Cooper's Hawk was probably cruising to the bird feeders to get the morning doves <laughs> behind the visitor center and just like was on its way and then just saw the Anya was like, you know what? That looks pretty easy. And um, that's my guess, but it could have been a Sharpie. Taste. It could have been a Harrier. It could have been a, you know, a great horned owl. It could have been um red shouldered Hawk. Yeah. There's all sorts of stuff there. Got exotic tasting. So sauce. that's the end of the Ani. <laughs> Saw something out of the ordinary. And said, Ooh, oh. I like that. <laughs> yeah. Something I, think not. The, I think the peregrines here on uh yeah. Caroline Islands have exotic taste too. Seems like they uh when when a novel bird shows up, uh it's it's often not long for this world if it sticks around too long. Definitely watched the peregrines stalking uh <laughs> staking out a varied thrush that was perching a little too prominently. 
get mm-hmm. makes you wonder. those birds on those islands man you could tell they just like they are not settled they do not know the place and those some of those predators know the place really well right they have a huge advantage and that they know oh yeah they know the topography the environment uh, and that matters you know like these birds learn their environment and the more they learn their environment the more advantage they have so interesting i want to talk about the conference i was at uh ned was there anything you had to say on on rare birds before moving on well i've got hours of stuff to say about rare birds but tell me me about this (laughs) tell me about this conference you were at it was a (laughs) okay it was like a national audubon thing it was yeah uh earlier in in November, about three weeks ago, I went to the National Audubon Leadership Conference in SS Park, Colorado, and uh, went for a few days. Uh, a couple of UNLV Audubon students went there, as well as uh, one of the faculty that's uh, helping advise UNLV Audubon, and then our president uh, with Red Rock Audubon. We all went out there, so six of us from Las Vegas, um, the campus and community chapter represented. And we got to meet up to, I think there are about 350 participants there across dozens of Audubon chapters, um, community and campus chapters, and um, a very diverse turnout, which is very exciting. And uh, basically the the reason for the meeting was to be introduced by uh, to the new strategic plan called the flight plan that National Audubon is rolling out and what the flight plan is and how they plan on um, rolling out this. And they are trying to get as many chapters on board. And we looked at that and kind of thought we should get on board with some of what National Audubon is trying to do. And so some big takeaways um, here, which is sort of like the bullet point list of impressions. And what I learned is that National Audubon, um, for one, they're trying to have a approach where they're working more with partners and local Audubon chapters to have a hemispheric approach to um, to bird conservation. And so this activates more community members across um, Canada, all the way down to Chile and Argentina, across the Wendy's, West Indies, uh, basically all the areas where our birds in North America are going to. Um, we can't really do as much for, say, the cerulean warbler in the United States by implementing great practices in forests in the Appalachians if they're losing habitat in um, in the wintering grounds in South America at really big, large rates, right? Like we have to think about these birds across their entire life cycles, where they're going for all parts of the year um, and critical areas uh, especially. So a lot of emphasis on that and using a lot of the great data that exists across um, MODIS data, banding data, CBC data, uh, citizen science data like eBird data, using all that to create this metadata that really informs where they're going to put their resources and activities. So that's very encouraging using all this amazing science out there um, to pinpoint places that have critical importance and create strategies and tactics accordingly is really important and and really great to see. Um, also, I noticed that they are diverting a lot of resources towards creating more bird-friendly programs and communities in metropolitan areas, especially. So 
They're putting their money where their mouth is on their EDIB initiatives. And really that's in short, they're trying to make sure that there are no people left behind in conservation. And so what that means is really expanding where the the activities are, where they're getting people to show up and what they're talking about. So and that was I, really encouraging. Uh, yeah. Can I just interrupt you quick to ask what EDIB stands for? Yeah. So it um, so it's going to stand for equality, diversity, inclusion, and belonging. And so what this is, is a set of tactics or it's a, it's a framework for identifying people in, in across your community that you represent that may not have equal opportunity or resources in engaging in conversations about birds, bird biology, bird ecology, or bird conservation within the context of of um of bird conservation organizations right but you can of course take that framework uh, and put it onto other organizations and there are various ways that people um plan on on implementing that type of stuff and various philosophies behind it um with with audubon it seems to be very focused on creating relationships and building trust brick by brick um and being more purposeful in identifying areas so for us at Red Rock Audubon, we naturally started by looking at Henderson Bird Viewing Preserve, Floyd Lamb Park, um, Clark County Wetlands Park to do a lot of our bird programming. But eventually we started to figure out we need to go to other places. Um, there are so many places that are left out. So that's it gives us sort of like a framework to work with and um, a set of things to think about. So that's how it exists within National Audubon, I think. And so that's something that we're looking to adopt to something along those lines here at Red Rock Audubon. And the reason that that is important is that it helps us remember that we need to be building bird-friendly communities um, if we are to be successful. We've we've identified that those things are, are quite important to us. And I think that for Audubon, National Audubon, um, this is putting their money where their mouth is and they're, they're walking the talk. Um, you know, there's definitely a lot of criticism coming the way of National Audubon for not changing from or not moving Audubon out of the name of National Audubon and, and opting to keep that name. Um, a lot of people are pretty upset by that. A lot of other people were not upset by it. And conversations ensued and um, they opted to not. But as part of it, they wanted to make it very clear that they are not the same. Uh, they they do not represent the values of John James Audubon, or at least all of his values, um, the ones that are coming into question. And what they're going to prove that by diverting these resources, and they seem genuine. Um, my impression was that this is a, a genuine effort um, to to do that. So I left very encouraged, and uh, am also very excited to come back from that conference and like be putting that work into Red Rock Audubon work. Yeah, cool. I think that's, uh, yeah, I think that's interesting with the whole, the whole name change business and more, more on that shortly, I guess. But, uh, but yeah, the whole discussion of what's more important. And I think arguably it is more important to just actually do something like it's easy to just change the name and say, okay, we're good. But I feel like this is Audubon even doing one better where they're actually change they're actually doing something. You know what I mean? They're actually 
implementing an action rather than just changing the way they're referred to, which I think in some ways is is more powerful because I don't know. It's uh it's I, I guess I'm thinking about this whole uh, I guess we're all thinking what uh, this whole name change business with the birds that's come about recently. And uh, it's sort of an interesting topic, right, where people are grumpy that all the birds are changing and it's going to be confusing and we're going to have to relearn everything. And I I heard a little bit more about the reasoning behind it. And I was sort of won over. It's kind of interesting that uh, the, the motivation is really to put more of the focus in birding on birds. Sorry, my radio is going off in the background here. That's distracting anyone. Um, there was a rusty blackbird. I don't know if that's what they're talking about, but, um, no, back to the name changes with birds. I think the, the motivation behind it was to move the discussion away from what these people were and talk more about birds and bird science and bring, and, and not to get distracted from the birds. It's easy to nitpick all these different, uh, all these different researchers in the past and historical figures and who was good and who was bad. And that's not the point of birding. Like we're trying to talk about birds and science. And if we're just keeping on nitpicking everything, it really pulls away from it and doesn't do, it does a disservice to everyone. So initially it was a little bit like, oh my God, we're gonna have to relearn everything and it's gonna be so confusing and no one's gonna know how to talk about anything. And I think there's an amount of that that's that's gonna be true, but I think it ultimately probably will be for the best. I don't know. I don't know if my thoughts are settled on the matter. I just think that there's, more to the situation than I had previously given credit to. Hmm. Well, it's definitely started conversations and no matter what, there's so many, so much value in having the conversation. Yeah. Right? Like the, that might actually be the biggest benefit. Yeah, for sure. And I think there's people that feel strongly on all sides of the spectrum. And I think something else that I hadn't considered that the, the people who made this decision talked about was that there's a lot of, uh, like a lot of us that have been birding for years and years are going to be confused and it's going to be a problem with all these name changes. But there's a lot of people that are new to birds. There's a lot of people that haven't started birding yet that are just going to come into birding knowing these new names. And so there's there's always a time for something to change and it's hard to know when that is. And and maybe this is it. It's never an easy discussion to have. It's never never going to be popular with everyone. But I think there's at least good reason behind talking about this. And I think it's a bit more interesting than I had initially given it credit. So uh, just worth mentioning, I guess. For sure. Yeah. Very interesting topic. Um, I think everyone's, I know that people are, I know that people are talking about it a lot when my non-birding friends and family send me articles about it. Like that's when I know the topic is big. Yeah. Exactly. When they start to send me that stuff, I'm like, okay. You know, so that meme about the uh, on social media about being in your thirties and one day you see a yellow rumped warbler. Oh yeah. That meme was big. And oh. I knew it was big because like my mom was sending it to me. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh man. Pretty funny ones about the bird change, the name change too. I don't know if you've seen any of those with like uh, animated images of, uh, of MERS or auklets or gulls or something. And it's like when you have to rename a bunch of bicolored black and white birds based on their plumage differences. And <laughs> uh, well, you know, it could be like a really fun exercise to come up with names. Um, and I'm not saying we do this now, but because <laughs> but, uh, we should probably start wrapping up here, but it could be kind of fun to come up with them. You have to 
really access your descriptive qualities or like what you know about the behavior of a bird to uh to give it an, another name and i'm a big fan of like names of birds that are an attempt to name it after the sound that it makes because it's always mm. imperfect yep. like killdeer <laughs> will chuck will's widow yeah um kiskadi you know those are some birds that come to mind oh, named yeah. after the sounds they make i'm like mm, okay buddy somebody had some some imagination there i hear something <laughs> else but that's kind of the fun of it yeah maybe we can get some of those going for these uh auklets and mers <laughs> yeah what would you what would it be if it was a mer oh god insane a groan (laughs) yeah just like some moan out into the the fog the The pacific (laughs) (laughs) you have to get the pitch there just just right Ooh, yeah you could make it like a there's there's no reason it can't be a tonal thing like yeah i got to get the tone right we could make this we could make birds even more difficult to talk about <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah even even less accessible uh, <laughs> oh man dude let's wrap up but there, we i know we yeah. had some other topics but we're getting long here so yeah just have yeah. to do another one sooner hit some good topics and it was good catching up no doubt dude and you're in a fun place get out there um find some some birds that are coming out of kamchatka russia or japan or something they're, oh, they're coming centers on find the like a, that rhineck yeah. is going to be here tomorrow Ooh, ooh a rhineck <laughs> wow okay you're shooting for the stars i'd be shocked <laughs> if that bird can make it across the pacific but something like a gray wagtail or oh they sure throat a pipit oh, oh yeah sure. oh yeah yep. that couple thousand <laughs> miles of open pacific no hey i just want to <laughs> shout out ned really quick uh everyone he doesn't know i'm doing this but he's the one who's editing this stuff and we have no idea what we're doing we're just kind of learning as we go ned's doing most of the learning uh because he's doing the editing and all that and and like we don't know what we're doing we just think this is fun we think that some people might benefit if they're listening uh so just want to give a shout out to ned i just show up at the time with kind of an agenda of talking points and we go so this has been a lot of fun and a great excuse to get to know ned a little better spend more time talking to him so that's it ned just want to call you out a little bit embarrass you thanks i don't know i don't know how much learning i'm really doing but we'll see we'll see how well these come out (laughs) i think we're getting it right maybe (laughs) another 100 of these and it'll sound exactly how we want it to sound and it'll flow exactly how we want it to flow and um we'll have yeah, well, let's sponsors. Get some feedback on that we got a little q a on every episode we post let's uh let's hear back from our listeners huh yeah yeah <laughs> let's, <there. laughs> do we have listeners <laughs> we have listeners. <laughs> i think we could look up those metrics they probably think they would tell me <laughs> cool our aim is to have more listeners uh each and every podcast so we want to hear from you uh, we want to know what you think is interesting what you want to hear less of like tell us what you want And we will actually put in work to try to do that. We actually respond that way. So let us know. We're having fun doing this and we'll do it as long as um, we think it's a a service to to people. So, and as long as we like each other so far, so good. Okay, man. Peace out, man. Thanks everybody for listening and tune in next time. We'll see you soon.